Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, we're back. It's season two of The Paratest. I'd just like to say that I have just come back from the Labour Party conference and my voice is very, very, very <laughs> weak, which is a sign that I had a very, very good time. Aisha and I will be back later to reflect on that conference and how Aisha has ended up in the state that she's in. But uh, <laughs> join us now for the live event recorded before Keir's keynote speech on Monday at Tate Liverpool. When Aisha still had a voice. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks what should Labour do not only to win power but to change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika. And I'm Sam Friedman and today we come to you live from the Tate Liverpool, a mere stone's throw from the annual Labour Party conference. Shortly we'll be joined by the executive editor of Political Europe, Anne McElvoy, former Labour speechwriter and director of the UCL Policy Lab, Mark Steers, and Tony Blair's former political director, John McTernan. And we'll be discussing Keir Starmer's plans for office and how his administration can deliver radical change, or even if they want to deliver radical change, at a time of such challenge for the UK. Now, before we go to our guests, this is my first Labour conference. I've never been to one before. Is everyone always this happy and upbeat? Is this what they're always <laughs> yes, like? Yes, Sam, it's amazing. There's always this whiff of, you know, confidence <laughs> and, and unity and uh, control. Um, yeah, so we haven't seen each other for a bit of a while. We've mm. had a bit of a break over the, the summer. And it did feel like politics kind of slowed down a bit over the summer, but it's absolutely back with a bang because we are in conference season. So... I went to your old stomping grounds. The Tory party conference. And I can't believe that I went and you didn't. I haven't been to a Tory party conference since 2009. They are hideous things. I, I can confirm they are. In, well, what was fascinating about it was that I felt that there were like two things going on. It was at the same time a sort of political week for a party that was losing power. At one point, I was actually in the Midland Bar and somebody's phone was like obviously dying and they were, they were running around going, I'm losing power, I'm losing power. And somebody was like, aren't we all love? You know, it's like, and I know this feeling because, you know, I remember being in the Labour administration when we were on the brink of losing power. You kind of feel it. You can sort of feel the decline. You can just feel it in your watches. 
But at the same time, there was also a little bit of fizz and excitement because there was the excitement of a new party being born. And I think there's a lot of people in the Tory party who are running gleefully towards opposition, mm. who are really excited about what lies ahead. Yes. A few journalists I've spoken to who were there said, it's basically like the conference that you have after you've lost, when you're in your comfort zone, when you're getting to do the kind of fun stuff that you've really always wanted to say, but have not been allowed to say because it was not considered to be politically acceptable. But they're doing it a year early, which in itself is sort of weird because it, it, it opens them up almost to a worse defeat if they've got... you know. They probably are going to lose next year anyway, but if they were disciplined and organised, they could limit that defeat. Whereas if they look like a complete rabble, it could get much, much worse for them. Yeah. And I think what's also really interesting is like the psychology of that, because I was speaking to, a, you know, some sort of former Labour advisors and, and a former kind of Labour ministers. And they, we were, me as well, you know, we were reflecting that when we felt we were on our way out, we were sort of grieving that you know as it was happening we were incredibly heartbroken about it and we sort of took the view the time we had left what are the good things we can do what should we get on the statute book that will mean something for the future like when I was working on the Equality Act whereas I think for a lot of the Tories now it's a kind of scorched earth approach but also I feel like a lot of them are gleefully running away from the responsibility of government they feel burdened by government yeah. Well, I mean, the one thing everyone agreed on at the Tory party conference was that they failed, right? They just blamed different bits of their own party for, for that failure or, or the wider woke blob or whatever. But, but nobody thinks the country's in a good place, uh, which makes it very, very hard to defend a, a record. So no one, they're not even trying anymore. But then this conference has felt very different. I mean, this is, it's felt very controlled, very tight, but party absolutely determined to, to win and looking like they are going to. You know, you compare it to the sort of speeches we saw at Tory party conference, the speeches we heard today from Rachel Reeves had a very clear argument, agree with it or not, it was very tightly structured, lots of, like, nice little stories to go along with it. It's what you're supposed to do. So it, it looks, you know, if you, if you knew nothing else about politics in Britain at the moment, you hadn't seen a poll, you didn't know anything about the policy context and just saw these two conferences, you'd say this was the party that was yeah. ready. And I think the other thing which is fascinating about Rachel Reeves' speech, and we're going to get on to more of that with our panel, I was really struck at Tory party conference. Back in the day, the Chancellor's speech, particularly under George Osborne's era, was like appointment viewing. You know, it was a big speech. It wasn't just setting the fiscal agenda. It was setting the political agenda. And there was poor Jeremy Hunt sort of given a 12-minute, 15-minute slot. He had no big announcements, you know, a couple of Ken and Barbie jokes, and that, that was sort of it. And you compare that to Rachel Reeves today, and it felt like a sort of chancellor of old, you know, a, a Brown, a Darling, a, an Osborne kind of really big politics. This is the big philosophy of the party. But the other thing about Rishi Sunak that I felt is that nobody really cares about Rishi Sunak there. Like, at one point, we were in the main hotel in the Tory party conference, and in years gone by, when it was Boris Johnson as prime minister, even Theresa May as prime minister, you knew when they were coming because there would be, like, a scrum. There would be people getting their phones out for selfies. There'd be a media scrum. And this time, there was a polite somebody saying, oh, excuse me, do you mind just stepping to the side? And, and someone whisked by you. And we were like, oh, who was that? And it was like, I think it might have been the Prime Minister. <laughs> and it was just like, you know, kind of slightly disappearing without trace. 
Yeah, I think I think people feel it's over for him now. Yeah, and and his speech didn't I think um, change that perspective. It was a, I thought it was absolutely bizarre kind of ramble, which didn't have any kind of structured argument. You start out by saying British politics has failed over thirty years. Well, that sounds like quite an interesting opening, which you could build on. And then he just went to and our, we've got great life sciences industry and great AI. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And then he just went on to a random list of policies. So. Yeah, I don't think um, he did anything to help himself. Yes, absolutely. There was no. I felt that the Rishi Sunak narrative was quite interesting. Because on the one hand, all the net zero stuff was like, "Hey, we don't want to be a nanny state. There's going to be absolutely no nanny state, but we are now going to ban smoking." And then they were like, "We're really going to protect children in the classroom, so we're going to ban phones in the classroom." But because we're libertarians do feel free to knock a child over outside the school because we do think like 20 miles an hour is a thoroughly, thoroughly bad thing. But I think what's really interesting as well, Sam, is that when we started this um, podcast last season, the sort of exam question was, is there any chance Labour could get into power? And it does feel that over the course of our, of our podcast and certainly where we are now, it's almost like the polls are sort of answering that question, which means the question we'll probably be exploring more is what lies ahead for a potential future incoming Labour government with the, the limits and the challenges. I'm going to go to our, our sort of guest and I'm going to ask John McTurnan a question about this because I think it sort of goes to the heart of what we're, we're trying to get at today and sort of this balance of radicalism versus sort of caution. Now, you were Julia Gillard's Director of Communication, you were Tony Blair's Director of Political Operations... And one of the interesting things about this week, you know, there's lots of discussion about whether Starmer is being radical enough, whether Labour is being radical enough. And you'd expect that from the left, perhaps, but we're also getting it from the Blairites. There was a piece in The Guardian quoting on the record, uh, Peter Mandelson, Alistair Campbell, David Miliband, sort of saying that they were worried that they're not being radical enough and not quite prepared for what's going to hit them. And I think you've sort of said similar things as well. You know, from that kind of perspective, why do you think the Blairites are worrying about sort of radicalism? My view is two things. One, Keir actually is incredibly radical because Keir's going to run a government that tackles climate crisis. There is no more bigger issue, no more existential issue, no more profoundly important thing than to make the energy transition, to decarbonize the economy, have a new industrial strategy, to do that well and to do it fairly and to do it quickly. It's the biggest bet that Labour are making, £28 billion a year. And I kind of think people... People feel differently about Keir because Keir doesn't have a bunch of spinning outriders in the papers. There's no court columnist. There's nobody who you go to and go, that's what Keir's thinking. Keir, as he said to me once, I do my talking on the pitch. He actually doesn't run a running commentary. And that, I think, is quite confusing for people from 96, 97, that Keir doesn't tell a big story. Keir just does it. Does you that know? matter? Does it matter that he's not I don't know. I, I genuinely don't think so because we're 20 points ahead <laughs> in, the, in, in the polls and last week's conference, well, this week's conference is Labour looking like the alternative government. Last week's conference was the um, Tories looking like the alternative opposition. I think it's working fine. It's also worth saying that Peter Mandelson was actually on my radio show yesterday and he slightly pushed back against that Guardian piece in his comments and he said, look, I am for being bold, but you can be bold but not be stupid. And I think what he is saying, Anne, is look... And actually, he'd make the point, which I thought we saw in Rachel Ryu's speech. He said, if you look through all the Labour policies that have been announced, there is actually some quite bold stuff. The £28 billion, the planning stuff is actually sort of quite bold. But he was like, 
it would be stupid for them to do anything which maybe some on the left would categorise as radical because it would just scare the horses. Well, look, first on that 28 figure, I think you both have passed rather lightly over the fact that that was moved yeah, two years moved. into the second half, if that is indeed a meetable target in the public finances. I think having said that they will deliver it in the second half of a first term, they will have to do so. But I think Labour in many ways is glossing over the fact that some of the things it is saying it can do are easy to deliver, and I don't think they are. And I think we will find, and we saw it in Rachel Reeves' speech today, when Blythe and Sunderland were suddenly going to become kind of microchip capitals of, of the world and sort of compete with Chinese factories. I think it's difficult. I think it is a difficult and a long transition, and I think the gains are much further down the line from that kind of pledge than we've reflected. So I'm just doing a bit of a, a reality check on your question on Peter Mandelson. I think he has a good ear for what is wise. And I think what he's saying is, yes, don't knock yourself out with a lot of radical things you can't deliver. It's not the... I think there's a kind of, if you like, a sort of new Keir orthodoxy that he's going to do all these amazing radical things, but we won't call them radical. I don't think he's not really saying he's going to do very much. I think he will be able to do a bit more on house building than the Tories have done because I think they just got themselves into a trap between their ambitions and and a quite nimby base. But, you know, they're not going to be the last party to have difficulties with that, and you can see with Labour's position of not settling on an HS2 alternative, that these, I think, are much more difficult decisions than we're reflecting. But in fairness to Labour, you know, the Conservatives have been there for 13 years, they're going to carry more of the can for now. But I, I would just put up a, a few warnings on the sort of it's all going to be perhaps a, a glide to power and thereafter. There's, there's a bit of an air of unreality across politics you know, at the moment generally and will be up to the election around the state of the public finances. I mean, you know, I don't, I've not had anyone mention, uh, predict what might be a next month's OBR report, but it's not going to be very pretty, I don't imagine. You know, debt interest is going to be much higher than they thought it would be. Inflation's been worse. The economy is doing worse. You know, we could be in a position where the OBR turn up and say, actually, guys, Jeremy Hunt isn't even close to meeting his fiscal rules, so there's going to be more cuts, more talk about tax rises. So there's a sense that actually it's going to be much more difficult than anyone's willing to accept at the moment. Look, Mark, you and I work together uh, with Ed Miliband and Ed's been very much playing a, a central role with this sort of green economy. But to Anne's point, there's every chance there will be a Labour government after the next election. But how quickly do you think Labour will be able to deliver change? I was just at a big event with Anna Sawa this morning and it's really important to, to note that there's going to be big Scottish elections in 2026. So actually, Keir Starmer has quite a short window of time to certainly show the people of Scotland and some changes being made. How realistic is that? It strikes me that, that that is the most important question that they should be thinking about in Keir Starmer's office right as we speak, which is, if you look around the world, what's happened in the last two or three years is you're pretty good election victories for centre-left parties. You think Germany or you think Australia on an agenda looking fairly similar to the one that Keir Starmer plans to put to the British people next year. But then you also see those governments falling out of favour remarkably rapidly. So uh, Anthony Albanese looks as if he's just about to lose this major referendum on the indigenous voice in Australia. The German government is in real trouble and people are saying it hasn't delivered upon uh, its agenda for working people. So I think you've put your finger exactly on it, as always, which is to say, look, if you win, people are going to expect a turnaround. 
That's why I think boldness is not a political strategy. It's an economic and social necessity. It's not misery of a rhetorical nature at the moment. People can't see a GP. If they turn up at the bus station or the train station, they don't know whether their train or bus will turn up. If they get on the train, they don't know whether it will actually get to the venue that it's meant to be going to. If their kids are meant to be going to school, they don't know whether they're in a safe building or not. You know, people are in an extraordinarily difficult situation at the moment when it comes to the basic necessities of life. And they are going to look to a new government, if there is one, to turn those things around. And working out over the period from now to the election, how does Labour do that? So it has some quick wins, but it also establishes long-term transformation. What do you think the quick wins are? Well, I think the the questions you imagine that they'll be thinking about at the moment would be an NHS turnaround. And we've seen Keir Starmer talk a little bit about that already this week. So tackling waiting lists getting GP surgeries up and running again, making sure that they can work on the weekends to clear backlogs. That sounds absolutely fundamental. And then I think in in education too, making sure that the fundamentals of schooling feel as if they're improving rather than uh, not improving. On those kind of fundamental basic public services, uh, you're going to need to act and you're going to need to act without spending very much money. So it ain't going to be easy, uh, but that's, you know, no one said government was meant to be easy. I mean, that's my worry. The NHS announcement was a great example. They said we're going to spend £1.1 billion pounds bringing down waiting lists by £2 billion. And you look at the projections for NHS spending off the back of the workforce plan that both Labour and the Tories have theoretically agreed to, and it would cost £6-7 billion a year just to do that, forgetting any overtime payments or anything else that you might want to do. So there's a sort of sense of they're playing with these very small amount announcements because they don't have very much money They can't talk about very much money because of the tax situation. But when it comes to it, when it comes to power, people are expecting something to happen with the NHS. Realistically, yes, it's not just about money, of course, but they are going to have to somehow find a lot more money. I mean, John, do you not not think that's a, a major risk for them in their first couple of years? The health pledge, and the health pledges actually being made by Wes and by Keir, are more substantial than Tony made, because I drafted the health pledge for the 1997 election. It was to cut waiting lists by having 100,000 more operations. And so I think there's a bit of looking back in which this is, people are far too romantic and nostalgic. And there's also, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of what Starmer and Reeves intend to do. There has only been one one-term government in the UK since the Second World War, the, Ted, the disastrous Ted Heath government. That means Labour can and are looking at what you could do over eight to ten years, over a a decade. That's why the most important thing that's being offered by by Keir is stability. We're paying the price of instability at the moment. The missions are a soft left proposition, and they're a proposition that we are ending the age of neoliberalism in British public policy. That's really important. It's the end of the extension of the market into every single sphere of life. Keir's not a Blairite. Uh, Keir's from the soft left. So, John, that line you just used about this is a break from neoliberalism, I mean, that's not the catchiest, like, you know, how does Labour communicate that in a better way? You have to understand the political economy of, of Keir Starmer, and it is an end to neoliberalism, and it's not, uh, it's not defining himself in relationship to Sunak. It's saying 
climate crisis needs a new set of tools. And I think, to be honest, that the language you have to use is about the language around climate crisis. Talk about that. Make this next election another referendum on net zero. You'd have to talk about future and fairness if you're Labour. Progressive parties never win except on future and fairness. And you don't win if you don't address the, the issue that's screaming out to heaven, which is if we don't, between 25 and 30, do something substantial in the UK. Every other policy ambition anybody has is set to naught. And I do think that we need a bit of old-fashioned preaching. I saw Anne grimacing during that. I was, I, well, well, that's a recipe us. for disaster, <laughs> actually. I have to, um, no, I think there is a real problem around this. I think the net zero, the shift of net zero by the Tories was obviously made just kind of road testing, literally road testing in many cases, how people responded to it. Do I believe that your climate ambitions are really materially affected by whether you move the target five years? No. I think it's probably good that Labour has a target that is in shorter order than the Conservatives. I think Conservatives have, have moved it simply because they need as many issues on which they can take the fight to Labour as possible because they've lost control of their bigger claim. And I think that is true. They don't have an overarching message, but what they do have is a number of issues and net zero target is one in which the public is not behind the progressive vision to the extent that I think you think it is. But I think when you use the word preach and preach net zero and turn the next election into net zero, I would have thought strategically that was unwise. So, John, are you saying that the, you know, the, the question I put to Mark, which is Labour gets in, it's got a short window of time to, to show some change if this is the change election you know what is the change that they can show in let's say the first year are you seeing just solely focus on on net zero and climate change what are the what are the kind of tangible quick wins they can do you've got 10 years the first thing you do is a crisis budget and parallel with the crisis budget is that you go it's worse than we thought. And we have at least five years of Labour having commissions inquiring into why it was worse than we thought. We have to absolutely establish the fact of how bad the country was left in. You have a 10-year plan, and there has to be a plan for this, and you do the immediate symbolic policies, the switch from the VAT on charitable, on charitable status, that comes in immediately, and the non-DOM status. You're doing all these things which give you money to spend on your intentions. But the big thing for me is... A 10-year perspective on planning, it creates a stability premium, and that's a massive thing. It's taken a decade to wreck our country. It will take a decade to rebuild our country. But the only thing that's holding our great country back is the current government. And if we can all find a role to play in that, and I think the mobilizing role, whether it's devolution or whether it's the renewable energy or whether it's the infrastructure, there's a whole loads of places in which people and communities and businesses can find their place in working together with Labour to change the situation. I think John's spot on that the rebuilding effort needs to take a very long time. And I think the sort of mission orientation that Keir Starmer and colleagues have laid out is exactly right. But I do think that we're in real danger of understating how bad things are for ordinary working people. And you can't ask people after 13 years of decline just to wait another five years. You know, e- even if you think that the parliamentary cycle might enable you to do that because things will start to pick up towards the end of the parliament, it will be absolute hell for the first two years of a Labour government unless there's a meaningful, substantive improvement to the fundamentals of everyday life. And that ought to be the animating purpose, I think, of Kia's operation at the moment, which is that you cannot just ask the people who've been sacrificing ever since the crash, if we're honest to keep on sacrificing more whilst the long-term work goes on. Because, um, you know, that A isn't fair, 
and B, they don't believe you. And that, I think, is a, is a fundamental political reality. And I think if we go to the missions point, I mean, I, th- I quite like missions as a concept and a way of thinking about government. I think they are a very unhelpful campaigning tool, by, almost by definition, because they are saying, we're not going to tell you how we're going to do this thing, which is kind of what the purpose of a campaign is. But I think they could be, an, in an adapted way, quite a useful mechanism for government. But they're not going to give you the initial message that you need. Where, where would you go for the framing for that initial message? I mean, I, I've been really impressed when, when Keir Starmer has talked about, uh, I know that many people listening will have heard it many times before, but his family story is a real story. Keir was brought up by his dad in a working-class family when he thought that his family was disdained and disrespected by the people around him. And that gave Keir, I think, the sort of moral urgency that has driven him in later life into politics. So I think the framing of respecting working people once again and not asking them to have to carry the can for other people's failures is going to be a fundamental part of the story that Labour take to office. But much more importantly than that, I think it does give you a sort of philosophical foundation, if you like. It's not just a, a good campaigning slogan. It's a good way of reorientating your relationship with the country. And uh, I'd like to see more of that uh, in you know, sort of Labour communications between now and the election. It was quite interesting. They did... Um uh, on the Sunday morning shows, they did the word cloud of, sort of Keir Starmer and what people sort of said about him. And you know, lots of people said, don't know, no idea, nothing. But the one thing that was there was working class, which was really interesting because the Conservatives and their press have worked very hard to, you know, circus Starmer every time to try and make him seem posh and you know, like he's inherited this title. But working class was like a big visible phrase. So that messaging is clearly starting to work. Well, we did some polling with Maureen Common recently and asked what do people want from their political leaders? And the two characteristics that people said they wanted is they wanted people to have been brought up in a working class family and they wanted them to have a family connection to the NHS. Keir Starmer has both of them. And uh, I think that's a fundamental part of the story that he's going to try and tell the nation between now and the election. And Anne, one of the things I was struck by in Rachel Reeves' speech today, or two things I think is really interesting, where the Labour Party have decided to make some very clear kind of primary colours cut through. One is the private schools. Now, some people are calling that class war, but that's obviously something that Rachel Reeves and Bridget Philipson and Keir Starmer are really, really happy to lean into. The other thing which I thought was really interesting was her saying, we're going after the COVID corruption crony money. We're getting that money back. It got an absolute kind of huge cheer. Do you think we are going to see, as well as the more kind of intellectual, considered, long-term sort of mission stuff, we're going to see a bit more eye-catching easy to understand stuff like that yeah and uh, i think the only question is how you're going to do it you know i think it did there was a slight tinge of the government inspector about rachel's speech wasn't it? i thought oh my god we're going to just keep <laughs> the inquiring. warden <laughs> yeah, we're going to keep inquiring into everything i think you know she's absolutely onto something with those covid contracts and fraud the reality of looking back to that time and also to be cost effective about it, it's just a bit of a culture in politics. It's like you bring in someone to investigate something that went wrong quite a long time ago. I imagine that quite a lot of, of that money is not recuperable. The other thing that I did doubt a bit about Rachel Reeves' speech, which I thought was a tour de force, and I think when she talks about Labour as the party of fiscal responsibility and has managed to get a party on side who used to come to Labour conference, I think John will remember, just looking for how many spending commitments they could sort of roll out. You know, well, John like stood in the wings, just like sweating profusely. I think that that has ended and Rachel Reeves has done a really, really good job on that. 
some of her own maths is a bit dodge, and I think she knows it, and she does it to keep the party on side. The thing about you know, VAT on private schools, well, again, we seem to have forgotten it. It was about two weeks ago they were going to lose their charitable status. That turned out to be illegal. Oops. So that's not happening. And now, really, you know, people who have an awful lot of money will still pay for private education. You'll squeeze smaller private schools. Some of them will go to the wall as a result. Maybe it won't make you know, a lot of people cry or crocodile tears what you get back for the treasury from that is negligible it is there as a gesture make it if you want but it's probably not going to help very much the covid one is interesting if they're serious about it that would be yet another very long-running inquiry how much do you want to look back if you're a labor government in term one do you want to i mean john wants to look back a a lot but i I do think there's a balance to be struck here between oh my god it's worse than we thought year one oh my god it's worse than we thought year two the clock will start ticking for you yeah but how how long was labor defending itself against the winter of discontent when you win badge your opponents for the losers you want them to be seen to be um, does it work now, though? Is it, does time not move on Well, I mean, the whole, the, whole, the whole Osborne Cameron nonsense hung over Labour for too long, given that Labour actually had bipartisan support for what it did in the face of the GFC. Politics is a contact sport. In the event that the Tories are in opposition, they will do what oppositions always do. They first blame each other, and then they blame the voters. And by falling out with the voters... They're already blaming the voters. I mean, yeah, well, they've got jumped to that stage. Well, the, the voters are part of the new elite. Um, there's a problem about that. The, the politics of division takes you down a line of division, division, division. But I think to pick up on, on Mark's really fair point, the Rutherglen by-election was won with the slogan, making work pay. Um, the Rutherglen by-election was won by campaigning on turning the Charter of Workers' Rights into a retail offer that responded to what people were saying on the doorstep. People on the doorstep in, in Rutherglen were not furious about Margaret Ferrier. Lab, Labour activists were, were hoping there was a fury there. Mm, they, John, they were very, there was a they, lot of dismay they, about they, the SNP. But when, when yeah, no, but I'm, but I'm saying SNP. that when, when people went to collect the, the petitions for the, for the recall, they didn't get the same visceral reaction about Margaret Ferrier that they expected. They found people who were willing to have a conversation. And when you listen to people on the doorstep, the thing that Labour were offering, which had a resonance and gave people permission to switch straight from SNP to Labour, was the policies around work, making work pay, workers' rights, something quite laborist. And that's actually one of the strengths, I think, of the Starmer, Reeves and Rayner, Troika at the centre of the party, is they can be quite laborist. <laughs> Mark... UCL Policy Lab have recently conducted a quite interesting sort of political report around the the issue of of respect. What what have you found? Do you think that kind of language is going to be important come the next general election? Because you've got two things happening. You've got a very visceral, nasty fight being kind of, you know, the Tories are tooling up for something pretty, pretty nasty. Keir Starmer likes to sort of frame himself as, as quite a noble person, as quite a decent person. How does respect 
match up against this real kind of dogfight that's coming down the track? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, 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 we were just intrigued because we'd seen that Olaf Scholz had run on this respect agenda uh, in Germany and had managed to turn things around for the Social Democrats when people said that was impossible. So we wanted to see whether anything like that might work here, especially since Starmer has talked about respect and ordinary hope and the everyday lives of working people quite a lot. And the two really compelling findings we discovered, the, the first was that we, when we asked people to rank what did they want to see from a prime minister, and we asked all the normal things, you know, sort of big ideas for the future, competent management, bringing the country together, the thing which came absolutely top was respects people like me. That's what people said that they were most looking for from a candidate for a prime minister. And then, of course, we asked, well, of the current crop, do you think that any of these political leaders respects people like you? And the person who came top of that ranking was Keir Starmer. And Keir Starmer significantly outpolled uh, Nigel Farage, for example, on that. So what could look like quite a populist ticket actually seems to play into Keir Starmer's personality, which is very much of the kind that you described. And when we pursue that in focus groups, you get exactly what you uh, mentioned, Asia. You get people saying, well, he's had a normal upbringing. Uh, he has parents who understand what life is like. But also he has a sort of dignity in his bearing that's kind of unusual for politicians nowadays. And that seems to be working. No, we can exaggerate it. The, the polling numbers were still not great. Uh, you know, he's sort of plus one and everyone else is in the minuses. Uh, but nonetheless, there does seem to be a space where he can enter into political competition there. And you, you interviewed Keir for your, for your podcast, Power Plays. How did you find him? What did you learn about him from the sort of process of going through an interview with him? So I wanted to test Keir Starmer on his foreign policy vision. And what I got the sense was, and I think the reason he agreed to do it, is he knows that that is a part of his offer, that he needs to bottom out. And that voters, although they're very, they, I think you put it um, very well when you, you talk, Sam, when you talk about him, rounding out his personality with the public. I think that is true. His leadership figures are still a little bit soft, but, you know, he still is here. And I did think they gripped it very well at the weekend. If you're prime minister, you have to have a sort of, suddenly some disaster will come barreling towards you just when you thought you were going to have a really nice time up in Liverpool saying, hey, we're great, the Tories are rubbish. And I thought they dealt with it very well. They interviewed David Lammy yesterday. So these Labour foreign policy people, I think they've really sort of got it. I think they understand that if you can't do that, you look... Remember the Conservatives, warts and all, have been around on the international stage for a long time. Yes, Brexit. Yes, all sorts of people don't like them. But they kind of know their way around the international system. And the system, in the end, also accommodates those who are in power uh, for a long time. So I think that was something I learned, that Keir knows he needs to work on that. He's a bit, you know, he does not, not the strongest foreign policy offer. He sticks very close to the government on Ukraine. It's kind of hard to... To peel that off, I think Europe is one of the only area where you can see a chink of difference. He really wants to be closer to the EU, but then as soon as he said that, and he wants strategic dialogue, is then you do solve real problems like immigration, you start to get into discussions about quotas and numbers, and then you go, whoa, I don't really want that. Let's not talk about that anymore. By the way, I think immigration is still a really, really weak link for Labour. I'm not sure at all that they've yet got their, their message right, and I think that... If you're looking to where the Conservatives are going, they're looking from what they've got, which is not an amazing buffet, they have some ingredients there that they think are going to work. And that's why the, the speech was the mess it was, Sam. It wasn't intended to be red nose to tail. These were segmented for different audiences to say, if you're worried about this, maybe come back to the Tories. If you're worried about that, stick with us. 
I very much agree with that. I mean, I think the the speech that electrified Tory party conference was Suella Braverman. It was Liz Truss. And no, it actually wasn't Liz. I mean, it was Suella Braverman. You know, Liz Truss was kind of there as a sort of vaudeville sideshow and she's not going away, but the Suella Braverman speech was the thing that sort of everybody was talking about. And what a number of Tory strategists said to me was exactly the point that Anne made. They know that on the economy, that very, very, very weak. They know that, you know, in terms of infrastructure planning because of the HS2 fiasco, they know they're very weak. And I think the two things I think they're really, really going to double down on as we get towards the, the general election, certainly in the short campaign, is just sort of really extreme on immigration. I think they feel that if they just harden and harden and harden their rhetoric on immigration, they somehow think that's a sort of trap for Labour. Is Labour going to match that sort of rhetoric? And then the second thing, I think they're going to go right back to some very coarse cultural stuff around transgender and and things like that. I think they're going to move the goalposts on that issue. Look, there is a school of thought that says the Tories are collapsing in England. The SNP is collapsing in, in Scotland. Keir Starmer doesn't need to be supervisionary, doesn't need to be that exciting. Is it enough just to be the default guy to get over the line, Mark? No, is the short answer. And I, but I don't think that anyone in the Starmer team thinks that it is. I think everyone recognises that stability and reassurance is going to be a crucial part of the offer. The Conservatives have had five prime ministers over 13 years, and everyone knows what the instability has led to. But on its own, it's not enough to convince working people that their lives are going to substantively improve under a Labour government. And that's why you're likely to see a series of commitments on health and on education and on housing and workers' rights, such as the material from Angela Rayner, which is intended to give people a sense that well, not everything is going to be transformed overnight. There isn't going to be a sort of new economy, capital N, capital E, you know, in the first couple of years. But there will be, so the argument will go, a substantive improvement in what everyday life feels like. And they will hope that that's both enough to win them the election and then that they have the policy now in order to be able to deliver it uh, in the first couple of years afterwards. Anne? It's possible that the Conservatives simply keep going on a downward trajectory but it is also possible that they won't and that they start to scrabble back. And that would be the time when I think Mark is right, actually. I think you need more definition around why these working people's lives would be different, better, but even incrementally better under a Labour government. In the Labour church, there is a belief that that is self-evident, but that is not as self-evident to many voters. So I would simply suggest that as a precautionary principle, if nothing else, Labour needs to begin to firm up the parameters. And remember, John made the point at the outset, is if you really want the two terms, you have to start really early on looking for a decent majority. What you don't want is for it all to slow down, you just about get over the line, and then you're in a position with a a smaller majority than will sustain you to look to a two-term government. So I think that would be my focus if I were advising Keir. John? The Labour Party has to have a retail offer. It's got to have policies that that tell me what's in it for me. No one lives in the United Kingdom. They live in their own home, with their own family. They live in their own community. They wonder what it means for them, their business, their family, their mates. So that's really, really, really important. It is also important to understand that the government, 
might try rhetoric, but they've got a record, and their record drags them back to earth all the time. And the reason I don't think the Conservative Party have any chance of coming back is there was an emotional bond broken with the public and the voters over Partygate. People who switched to Tories going, I thought Boris Johnson was the real deal, and he wasn't. There's something emotional in the rupture there. What's the one thing you really want Keir Starmer to land in his big conference speech? Because this is a big moment, not just for the activists in the hall, but it's a big moment for him to communicate with the, the country, Mark. But very briefly, please. I'd like to hear him explain that he understands what the cost of living crisis really is like for people across the country and that he does that in a way that ordinary politicians don't. Anne? I'm going to be a bit mischievous. Why not? I think he has to kind of define himself a bit as being in charge because I thought Rachel Reeves used the word I a lot today. She often talks about <laughs> Keir and me. <laughs> she wants to say something about me and Keir, but it isn't supposed to be the other way around. Anyway, I think there is a slightly serious point there. I think Rachel Reeves is a bit tub-thumpy, but you know, absolutely nailed it on. as uh, Bring it on, she said. And I thought, yeah, she brought it on. Can Keir bring it on? Oh, Anne McElvoy, you wee stirrer, love it. John? I want to see Keir address the country, speak to the country, not to conference, and I want him to speak about an issue they care about. I agree with Mark about the importance of cost of living. I want Keir to land housing as Labour's issue, the issue that concerns young people, that's now so serious it concerns older people, parents, aunts, uncles, because London is a place now where property is hereditary. There's big radical policies, but if you, if you have to have it on one thing, it, for me, it would be take, own and run with housing. Brilliant. We're going to be back shortly to talk about uh, Keir's speech after it happens, thanks to the magic of um, podcasts. But uh, for now, many thanks for joining us. Uh, Anne McElvoy, John McTennan and Mark Stiers. On Tuesday, Keir Starmer made his address to party conference. He talked about the NHS. How has it come to this? Working people paying for their own health care in a cost-of-living crisis. Pensioners waiting weeks, months, sometimes waiting years just for the care that they need. No, the whole point of our NHS is to be the crowd-funded solution for all of us. That's the fundamental principle. And at the next election, it's on the line. The Conservative Party that brought our NHS to its knees will put it in the ground. We have got to get it back on its feet. About infrastructure. A future must be built. That is the responsibility of serious government. And if we continually wash our hands of this task, we all end up in a rut, just like now. So it's time to get Britain building again. It's time to build one and a half million new homes across the country. Opportunities for first-time buyers in every community. And about the necessity of a decade of national renewal. I grew up working class. I've been fighting all my life and I won't stop now. I've felt the anxiety of a cost-of-living crisis before and until your family can see the way out, I will fight for you. That's my mission and we will do it. We will face down the age of insecurity together. Break the stranglehold of Tory decline. 
walk towards a decade of national renewal. Conference. So, Sam, what did you think of the big speech? I'm going to be honest with you, Aisha. I found it very boring. But then I do find most political speeches very boring, partly because of the way that they're structured these days, the sort of way that they are all made up of very short sentences and lists, which just goes on and on and on in the same tonal register. Tony Blair basically was the one who started doing that, and he could do it because he was a very, very good speaker, unusually good. But very few other politicians can do it, do it well. I sort of long for the days of a kind of Kinnock speech where, where you sort of have these long, unfurling, romantic sentences, but you just don't get that anymore. But let's be clear, it doesn't matter whether I found it boring or not. There's, not. there's no correlation between how exciting someone like me finds a political speech and the success of, uh, of that leader. So he did the job it needed to do. It, it got the coverage it needed to get, right? As did the whole conference. I don't feel I learned very much more, but it sort of ticked all the boxes. But I'm guessing you, you thought you, you, you preferred it to me, I'm imagining. Look, I think it was good. And I think you're right. It absolutely needed to do the job that it did. I think that the sort of glitter bomb moment at the start actually electrified the whole and it kind of electrified the, the speech. And he handled that really well. And I have some sympathy with what you were saying about the structure. I think it could have done with a good edit. But I felt it was a very Keir Starmer speech and I feel like this is who Keir Starmer is. He's not Tony Blair. He's not this poetic orator like Neil Kinnock. You know, he's not a kind of verbal showman, if you like. But you did get this quite earnest but heartfelt glimpse into his political soul. I think it's interesting that he is really kind of focusing on the working class aspect of things and he's saying that look you know I understand what it's like to be overlooked or to be held back because of your class and I think that's important for two reasons it gives him something to distinguish himself from Rishi Sunak and all the other recent Tory prime ministers but secondly it's a really useful device for party and movement management because there is this accusation, oh, look, all big businesses were there. You're a party of like money and wealth and business now. I think by kind of leaning into class, by having this row about private schools, by saying the word class a lot, he's sending a signal to the left of the party that he does care about those things. And loads of people I spoke to loved all the stuff about the working class bit. Yeah, and, and Mark Steer spoke on our panel about the sort of respect agenda that he's sort of been pushing through his his work at UCL, and and, and it's pretty clear they've read that research and that sort of sense of of that kind of disdain that Keir Starmer felt himself when he was growing up, and and which is clearly shared by a lot of people. That is coming through a bit to the extent that he does have any definition with the public. It is around that kind of class consciousness. And it does also differentiate them from the Blairites. It's quite lazy to say, oh, they're just the Blairites are back. You know, Tony Blair very explicitly ruled out tax on private schools as an example because he felt that wasn't speaking to the voters he wanted to speak to. So it is a, it is a shift in the kind of language that they're, that they're using. And, and, and I agree that that sort of went down well in the hall. I mean, in terms of policy, do you feel that we learned much new. Was, am, I, am I being unfair by saying it was sort of 
felt like kind of the stuff they'd been saying already for the for the past few months. Yeah, I think I think it's fair for you to say that. Look, they briefed out pretty heavily the night before and the morning of the speech I spoke to Starmer's team. They were really, really clear to brief people that there was not going to be like a big rabbit coming out of the hat in terms of policy stuff. I think the policy thing that they probably lent into most a thing is housing. Mm. You know, they they basically they're obviously doubling down on their housing offer, which, as you and I have discussed, I think out of everything they've put on the table is actually the most bold and the most radical. But I think they used the speech and Rachel Reeves used her speech as well to sort of pull together all their policy announcements. But the other thing that really caught my eye, look, I feel like a lot of this speech was tonal more than anything. Yeah. As you say, it wasn't big policy stuff, it was tonal. I feel like the use of the word service was really interesting as well. So instead of just saying that we want to be a party from like protest to power, instead of just kind of using the word power over and over again, he used the word service a lot. And again, I thought that was quite clever because it points to his hinterland as this pub, great public servant having worked for the Crown Prosecution Service and kind of saying, look, the MPs that I'm going to bring forward as my team, they're going to have one job. They're here to serve you. It's all about public service. And I think if you kind of weave that with his sort of own personal story and the class stuff, I think he's kind of making the point, look, I'm really good at getting things done. And I promise you I'm going to get things done, not for me, but for you. And my team's going to do the same thing, which again is such a contrast to the Tories, party gate, corruption, in it for themselves, all this kind of stuff. So I thought that was quite an interesting kind of emotional dividing line. Yeah, and I, you know, while I'm nitpicking away at this speech, I mean, let's be clear, it was miles better than St. He doesn't have to defend the last 13 years, which makes it a lot easier to, to sort of do a good speech. But in terms of the voter research that had gone into it, the thought about messaging, the, you know, it was you know, much, much better and uh, you know, in a two-horse race, you own you know, the other horse has completely fallen over. You don't need to run that fast to win. So, yeah, from from that point of view, I agree. The bit that made me wince, the bit that I, I really struggle with when I hear Labour politicians say is he said, when he said, "I want a reforming state, not a checkbook state," and like that, that is just a total false dichotomy. You can't have a reforming state without a checkbook. That's why you didn't yeah. announce any big reforms because you don't want to get out of the checkbook. So. Yeah. It, it, that that feels like I totally get why they're doing it. It was a big theme of our first series. I'm sure we're going to talk about it a lot in the second series. But it, it's just a little bit of dishonesty that I think is really going to get them into trouble after they've won. And and that, that that's still making me wince every time I hear it. And this is a theme, as you say, we've explored so much. It's not reform versus investment. You have to have investment to get the reform right i was on a bbc show with angela rayner just after keir starmer's speech and i was kind of making this um point to her about you know reform costs money but she was sticking to her guns going no 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 no, no. we can just we can just we can just do reform we can just do reform but look i think the reality though is sam look for people in the hall they loved it you know what i mean like there were people practically yeah. weeping like it was the most amazing life-changing <laughs> kind of like near religious experience that they had ever had yeah. But let's be honest, some of his job is to put on a good show for the people who have paid all that money to come to conference, the party faithful. His big job is to get into the sort of living rooms and really the phone screens of a public and say to them, look, am I a prime minister in waiting? 
And because of all the horrendous events in Israel and because of the the sort of protest at the beginning and, and even the, the news cycle with Holly Willoughby saying that she was leaving, you know, this morning, there was not a lot of space for loads of coverage of his speech and he didn't have a big policy headline from his speech. It didn't get blanket wall-to-wall coverage. But the kind of key messages that got out, he dealt well with the protester. He he looks prime ministerial and he's got a lovely wife and he hasn't made any mistakes. I think they were the main things to achieve. Oh, yeah, they'll be delighted. And then I was reading the Times, you know, they had sort of reactions for the, about the speech from all their columnists and they were all saying lovely things about it. And you can imagine sort of Labour HQ beaming with delight as they were reading it. You know, they got what they needed out of this week because I'm not a Labour person. I'm not worrying about the election. I think you're going to win the election anyway. I'm worrying about the year after the election. And this is this is my disconnect with this conference because I'm not the person who suffered in 2015. Uh, and I'm not sort of delirious that the party's finally sort of got its act together. Well, I am pleased that they have got their act together, but not quite in the same way. I, I'm sort of very focused on the kind of asteroid heading towards us rather, yeah. than, the, uh, rather than the election. I, I totally. And that's why it's so interesting doing this with you because... I'm like just in shock and awe of the fact that in four years, this conference has gone from like a human jumble sale to a sort of like, you know, well-oiled political <laughs> machine. So I'm just like, wow, like people can like kind of do their shoelaces up and stuff. It's like, it's like amazing. It's like amazing. But 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 you're right. You're actually, although, although, although many people that I caught up with who, you know, very nice thing, very nice things about our podcast, Sam, they were saying, a lot of people, even though they thought Labour have done brilliantly at this conference, they're still very, very nervous about the election. One former very, very senior person in the Labour Party who really knows the data and has crunched the data, they said to me, I still think we're possibly in hung parliament territory. Yeah, I, you see, the thing is, I also talk to Tories and they don't think that. <laughs> they they, they, they no. know they've lost. Yeah, the, the only chance the Tories have is a recovering economy next year, and even that isn't gonna isn't gonna do it. I don't think for them. Yeah, plus you had Rutherglen, which was we haven't talked about, which was an extraordinary result for Labour, and and you know put you know, does suggest they're on track for a, for a good twenty or so seats in Scotland, which helps enormously with getting the majority. A really interesting point for our listeners to to watch out for. So Keir Starmer needs Anna Sawa to do well to deliver him MP so he can get into Downing Street. But there are big Hollywood elections coming up in 2026. So Anna Sawa needs Keir Starmer to deliver for people in Scotland quickly so he can do well in the 2026 Hollywood elections. Yeah, and that could be it. If it doesn't, if it's not going well, that could be the first sort of big sign of, of the problems to come. I feel like we have to let you go because I feel like you're about to fall over, um, Aisha, that your voice is disappearing. You obviously had a more exciting conference than I did because you were, you, you, you were clearly out all to the wee hours of the morning. Well, someone had to, Sam. It was a tough job, but somebody yeah, had to. Yeah, I, I, just, I just went to bed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so boring. No, but that's good. You're, you're, not, you're not a husk of your former self. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Power Test. Do get in touch on Twitter at The Power Test or you can email pod at thepowertest.co.uk. Join us next time when we'll be discussing the politics of net zero, which have got particularly spicy over the last few months with a former aide to President Clinton, Paul Bledsoe, and The Economist, Tim Loynig. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.